You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, good morning and welcome yet again to Grace Community Church. With the opening weekend of the State Fair, I thought you might get sleepy today, so I wanted to try to keep you awake with my my outfit, so... um, (laughs) Maybe that'll help. Um, Lots of stuff going on here at Grace Community Church. Um, David mentioned a lot. Uh, Lee mentioned some. The next two weeks, if you're brand new or if you're just wanting to know more about Grace, uh, or if you haven't been here in a while, Discovery Lunch next Sunday. Please sign up. If we don't have folks sign up, uh, we'll just have to be eating pizza for all afternoon. I suppose the elders and staff will be. Uh, So come join us, and it's an informal time. You're not going to have to say anything other than just around the table. We'll get to know each other. Uh, We would love for you to be here. If you're thinking about uh, joining ranks with us here at Grace, that's a a, a great place to start. A more official place to start is the week after that, uh, January, what what is the month? October 28th. Thank you very much. It may be one of those days. Be on the ready. Uh, October 28th, we're going to be starting our Grace Connection class at 9 o'clock Sunday mornings. We will have child care available. It's a four-week class. You'll learn about what we believe, what's the personality of the church, how does it function, uh, what is our leadership structure, one of the most important things you can know about church, how how do we do business here, and and who do we consider uh, the leader? Is it one pastor or are there several pastors? All those questions will be answered in that four-week period. And if you do plan to join, uh, you need to attend that class. That doesn't mean that we assume you're going to join, but it's a good way to learn more about Grace and get to meet some some new people as well. Um, David mentioned that the Grace Matters class, which usually meets on the fifth Sunday, is uh, meeting on the 24th instead of the 31st because of Halloween. David, I'm sorry. It's Reformation Day. It's not Halloween. We have nothing to do with Halloween in this place. So we're, we're meeting the 24th because of Reformation Day. So if some of you wish on the 31st to dress up like Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli, then go ahead and just go uh, get food and do the best you can. Um, and also, uh, this Saturday, Ben's breakfast, um, and especially this Wednesday night, parenting class. I don't care how long your kids have been out of the home. I don't care if your grandkids have kids. Be at the parenting class Wednesday night at 6.30. Go for about an hour and a half. We need as many parents or parents or, or, or parent wannabes to be at this class it's, it's, it's increasingly difficult in our day. It's never been easy to raise children, but we can learn from each other. So just want to encourage you to be there. The, the textbook is Paul David Tripp's book called Parenting. And we would love for you to be here Wednesday night at 6.30. So let me ask one of those questions that I want to ask. You may think, oh, didn't you just ask that? No, I've asked things similar to this. But, but here's one uh, for you to think about. What in this life. 
do you hope for? I mean, what, what are your dreams, aspirations? In fact, what is the deepest desire of your life? For some of you, it's, a, it's, it's not changed much in 75 years. Uh, it's a house, a spouse, and two children. You know, that's kind of pretty much the way it, it goes, the American dream, so to speak. Uh, for others of you, uh, your deepest desire in life is for justice for all mankind because such a dream like that just seems ridiculously unrealistic and unattainable for so many. Uh, some of you love capitalism, and others of you are at the very least intrigued with socialism. Some of you are half glass, uh, glass half full, and some of you are glass most, I mean glass half empty. Some of you just want your children to be happy and safe. And all of us at some level, let's just be honest about this. All of us are trying to get over our childhood in one way or another. Uh, even if we say life was so much better back in the day. There's a lot from our childhood that uh, plays on our minds and gives us difficulty. Look, that's one of the things. I've just come to this amazing discovery. And you should all know, right? You'll think, yes, I'm so glad you told us this after I say it. But life for me as a teenager was pretty difficult because of my own doings. I mean, I, I got myself into a lot of trouble. I had great parents, but they didn't know how to handle me. I was a mess. Allison tells me about some of her fourth graders, and I will say, uh, that would have been me. <laughs> we wouldn't have gotten along if we were in that position, maybe. But... I mean, I was wild all over the place. And there are a great number of memories that I like to think back on in my childhood. But State Fair is one of them. And so when the State Fair rolls around, I get up there when I can. And I do not go every night of the week, as some of you think. I just go times, and then and, and that's about it. <laughs> Look, I, I could go on with all kinds of questions and assertions, but really... What's the point? I mean, is there truly any meaning to life? Even, even if we're passionate about some of the things that are right in front of us, is there really any purpose and real meaning in life? And if so, does it have to do with God? In your bright moments, you probably say, yes, absolutely. Or even, I don't need him. You know, life's good, don't need him. In your dark moments, well, if he exists, it's not doing me much good. If he exists, there are a lot of questions I won't answer. We're a mess as human beings. Even for the perpetually optimistic. For those who have enjoyed a good life for a very long time and who always look on the bright side of life. Something is missing, and in times of trouble, we may feel devastated, incomplete, or just numb. And if we remain inside our heads, it seems all of us, sooner or later, will become existential nihilists, doubting that there is any true life or true meaning to be found in this life. Look, it may be that you're at church because you've come to just such a place in your life. You're thinking, man, what I thought was going to fulfill me just hasn't. And everything was going so great and it fell apart in ways I could have never imagined. 
Is there truly meaningful purpose in this life? Or maybe you're a believer. If you're a believer, you're here for the right reason. But you have long followed Jesus. And, and, and just lately, some things have gone badly that you had no idea were possible for a Christian. Maybe it came from within you. Maybe it came from outside. And life is just hard right now. These questions about meaning are nothing new at all. I mean, the search for meaning is all over the scripture, this desire for understanding. I mean, think about the, maybe the, the most famous is, is, is the preacher in Ecclesiastes 1, 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That's five vanities in about ten words. I mean, it is, it's a lot of vanity. It means nothing. Life just means nothing. Elijah, after standing down 500 prophets of Baal, found himself in a cave hiding from Jezebel, saying, Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. I did so much for you. Nobody else did it. I was standing alone for you, and now Jezebel's going to kill me. Even the apostle Paul came to a point in his life where he realized that all of his accomplishments were rubbish. <clears throat> The Greek is much more descriptive, but I will leave it at that. Today's text, Isaiah 54, addresses men and women who were suffering under the heavy oppression of Babylon. Now look, you, you may say, oh boy, it's going to be one of those sermons. Really, it's not going to be one of those sermons. There's a great deal of joy in the text that we're going to read today. But can you put yourself in the place of, of God's covenant people being oppressed horribly by these cruel and wicked, mocking, belittling Babylonians, pagan, just mocking God's people? The captive people felt abandoned by their God. In today's text, God admits that he had turned away from them for a time. He said, look, there was a time I turned away from you. But my, my focus is back on you, and it will be there forever. I mean, what did the people do for God to abandon his people? Do these Old Testament promises of everlasting love to the nation of Israel that came after he abandoned them for a brief time. Did they have anything to do with us in these New Testament days? Uh, is there any cure for our discouragement and meaninglessness of life that most of us experience sooner or later? And is there a cure when we know all the answers? I think that's been one of the, one of the things that's been difficult for me as a pastor over the years as a a leader of Christian ministry and pastor, is that if, if I'm going through a hard time, most of what you could say to me, I already know. I mean, I just, I, I know it. I, I say it to people all the time. But of course, God is fresh all the time. And he meets me in ways that I could have never dreamed. The Lord does that. It's, I'm not, it's not like I'm saying I know everything there is to know about that. But the longer you've lived as a Christian, the more you know. And when you come to a place that you cannot 
synthesize in your head. It just, you can't, you can't make everything fit together. It feels especially discouraging. Is there something, some cure for that discouragement and that feeling of, well, I've had a good life, but going forward, I just don't see it. I don't see it happening. The answer is a resounding yes, but it requires us to allow the big questions of life to be handled by God rather than searching everywhere for answers. Trust me, says the Lord, and I will fill your heart to the full. Now, when I say wrestling with the big issues of life, that's exactly what people that you know who are lost are doing, and you need to help them wrestle with them. But you need to constantly be pointing them to the Lord, to Jesus. And that's what our text today is going to do. Uh, so wait just a second. Jesus in Isaiah? I mean, we're in Isaiah 54. Look, if you were here last week, absolutely Jesus in Isaiah. Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. I'd rather just say Isaiah 53. Uh, because that's where it, the, all of those verses should have been in Isaiah 53. Um, And what is Isaiah 53? It's, It's the father turning his back on Jesus. The sin bearer. That God's everlasting love can be made available to us. There's a plan that God has. It cannot be broken. So many times when you go somewhere and somebody says, okay, got a plan. Now, if you're like me, you're saying, hey, wait a minute, I got an idea. And when we go to God and say, I got an idea, God just says, I've got a plan. That's it. There's one plan. I heard a wedding this past week, and I'm going to steal the mess out of this. A guy who's a businessman who actually did the wedding. But he said, when Jesus came to earth, there was no plan B. As you stand here together, pledging your love together, there is no plan B. Just one plan. When Jesus came, there was only one plan. And so, um, God had a plan, and it involved Jesus' suffering. And when we get to, in chapter 54, that God says he turned away for a brief moment and came back, it's all wrapped up in Isaiah 53. It's all part of the context. So next week... um, David Calvert is going to be sharing from Isaiah 55 about the full effect of God's word in our lives. Full impact uh, and influence of God's word in our lives and how it always finds its mark. And this is what David did his PhD work on. So you definitely want to be here, if at all possible, next week. Today in Isaiah 54, our hearts are going to be encouraged as we encounter the one who meets us at a far deeper place than at the level of our physical needs. Most of our prayers are about physical needs, material needs, needs, aren't they? God meets us at such a deeper level. And when all of that other stuff proves insufficient or unable to allow us or it renders us incapable of of doing the things that we used to do because we're physically limited now, uh, then we start to think about the spiritual things. And God is saying, please think about this right now. So the Lord fulfills the deepest longings of our heart. And we sometimes don't even know they exist until everything else has been taken away. 
Today uh, will be mostly application as we consider God's word for his children. We never can draw appropriate application from scripture until we first know what the meaning is. But we've spent 53 chapters in Isaiah preparing for Isaiah 54. The context, again, Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 55, very much speaking into what's going on here. Um, look, I know many of you have really loved these last three weeks we've been able to go through verse by verse and going to do that again today. It's going to be a lot more difficult after next week. But today is going to show some of the limitations of preaching that way every single week. As we go through verse through verse through verse, we're going to find ourselves all over the place. And one of the things that sermons do is to sort of bring it back together. But so just prepare your mind to be going in a lot of different directions. But prepare your heart to be blessed as well as we think about the ways God has ordered his creation. And has drawn us to him and how he answers every question as long as the question is asked in good faith. So, instead of standing to read, we're going to read all 17 verses. But we're going to do it a little bit at a time of Isaiah 54. I will begin our time with prayer. Let's pray. Lord, um, we all acknowledge uh, that we need to be here on Sunday morning for a number of reasons. You have called us and commanded us as believers to meet on the Lord's Day. You have um, established it in such a way that we remember... Our priorities when we come to this place. You have called us to hear from your word. And to partake of the Lord's table. And to baptize those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. And it's in this space and it's in this time. As we lift our hearts and worship to you singing with all our might. It's then and it's during the preaching of the word and during the prayer focus that we're continually called, even announcements, continually called to worship the Lord. Establish us, Father, as believers and light a fire in our hearts that will cause us to seek to engage the world with the gospel. Thank you for that truth that although we were sinners, who deserved punishment for all eternity in hell, apart from your presence. You sent Jesus to take the wrath in our place, which we read about so, uh, we saw so vividly last week. It was as if the cross was before our very eyes. Because of Jesus' sacrifice on this day, Lord, we pray that you would guide our hearts to a much happier place and a confident place, a peaceful place. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. 
Isaiah 54, 1. Sing, O barren one, who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, <coughs> you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Now think about it. This is coming exactly on the heels of Isaiah 53. It's almost like Romans 7, the very end. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? I thank God that one day when I stand before Jesus, I'll be delivered and I won't have struggles with sin anymore. And then Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. In this victorious, beautiful chapter, my favorite chapter in the Bible. I, I, I never had one until just recently, and it's Romans 8. I'm, I'm not surprised that it's Romans 8. It's a great one. Isaiah 54 comes right on the hills of 53. Sing, sing, O barren one, you whose life was so sad. Now break forth into singing. I imagine when I ask a question like, what is your deepest desire? Children are somewhere in the equation. Even if you're a teenager, you're, you're not thinking about kids just yet. Um, you're, you might be pretty soon, though. You're thinking, oh, I just want to have children. I can't wait till this. Maybe as a teenager, you're thinking, I, I want to have a kid so it can be my turn to boss somebody around, you know? To say, because I said so. That's why I'd like to have kids. Well, that's true. That's true. I used to tell my kids. I, I didn't say it that way. I would say, um, I'm the adult. You're the child. God has given me the responsibility. I know you don't, it doesn't make sense to you. One day you'll be in my shoes. You'll be saying the same thing to your children. Just trust me. I love you. But no, the answer to this is no. That's the kind of brilliant wisdom you're going to get in the parenting class on Wednesday night, right? <laughs> <laughs> so ushers, if we'll set up about five or six chairs, I think maybe that'll, that'll do it. <clears throat> now we're going to be hearing from Paul David Tripp more than Brad, Carl Brad Talley. Um, look, we all have this desire to have children. And, and Scripture acknowledges what it's not socially polite for us to say, but we all know when you can't have children, that's a difficult place. That's a sad place to be. Um, it would have been far sadder for the Israelites than it would be for us today. Their numbers had been decimated by the war and in captivity. Children were a matter of survival for the nation. <coughs> <clears throat> and if they no longer exist as a nation, was there any real purpose to life? Was there? Well, God is going to say through Isaiah <laughs> more than you can imagine. And while, yes, many of you are going to have children, not all of you will, but the family that we're going to be talking about is far greater than any family you could have imagined in your ideal for the perfect life. In our text today, we will encounter intimate language, not inappropriate language, but an intimate language in which Yahweh is presented as the husband of his people, much like we as the church constitute the bride of Christ. The relationship between Yahweh and his people is spoken of 
covenantal terms. The Lord was moving toward deeper truth as Isaiah used an analogy that resonated deeply with God's people. We don't have any kids. Our, our, our name is going to die out. Our, our nation is going to die out. And he's, he's saying, well, first of all, you're going to have kids. But there's something more that you need to understand. Isaiah was using a physical point to make a spirit, a physical analogy to make a spiritual point. This relationship that you so want in your family is far deeper even with you and your creator, your, your redeemer. There are times in the New Testament, that hang with me now, there were times in the New Testament where uh, the writers had to reiterate the importance of the physical uh, because the spiritual had been exalted to a place that diminished God's creation and his created order. Paul addressed that heresy uh, that said Jesus' resurrection was a spiritual resurrection only. He was like, no, 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 no. No, that was a physical resurrection. And if he wasn't raised physically from the dead, we are of all people without hope. We're going to rise from the dead one day. We're going to be blessed with these brand new bodies. And God is, we're going to live in God's presence forever. So... John addressed it in this way. He said, look, he was real. We, our hands touched him. Our eyes beheld him. We know Jesus Christ has come to the earth. And if you don't confess that Jesus Christ has come and that he was God in the flesh, then you cannot be saved. In the second century, a heretical form of Gnosticism infected the church. You know about Gnosticism? It was a religious philosophy that wormed its way into the church. It's far too complex to explain here, but just, just a little bit. Gnosticism was all about knowledge, gnosis, the Greek word for knowledge. And <clears throat> the way it goes, uh, a, a lesser god, there were all these gods in this lesser god, the Demiurge, he was like number 43, I think. I, I haven't looked that up in a long time. So I could be way off. He could have been 42 or 41, you know, for all I know. I think he was 43, though. Um, maybe he was Demi W. Urge. No, no, that's bad. Really sad. I don't even know if George W. was 43. So anyway, <clears throat> this Demi Urge mistakenly created the universe. So it's an accident. It's kind of like this world came into being, and it really shouldn't have. It's like, all right, you've created it, now let's try to get out of it. And, and, and so all material became evil. Now, Plato had set the stage. He was a dualist. There's the material world, the spiritual world. Well, Gnosticism comes along and, and has this great um, uh, appeal to a lot of people. And they were saying the material is bad, the spiritual is good, so therefore have as little to do with the material as you possibly can. This world is, is filthy. Sex, dirty. Childbirth, absolutely disgusting. That was Gnosticism. Um, 
the Dan Brown books, uh, the stuff at the Louvre and all the crazy stuff he does. I can't remember the names of them right now. David, you tell me, Scott, tell me, somebody tell me. Da Vinci Code, yes. Uh, look, that was, <clears throat> there was a big revival of Gnosticism about 15 years ago. I go to Barnes & Noble and I watch the books on Gnosticism grow like that. And this Da Vinci Code movie was going to come out and everybody was saying, look, we're going to have a revival of Gnosticism. The movie bombed and the books went just like this, you know. So, thankfully. But now, think about it. Um, Gnosticism was probably a response to the freewheeling and licentious centuries preceding the second century. Um, the, the people of Rome and Greece were vulgar. They were just vulgar. That's one of the reasons synagogues attracted so many Gentiles. Because they said, here's a religion that has some sense of morality to it. Well, Gnosticism comes along and says, look, we just want to escape this earth as much as we can and uh, just look to the spiritual. Do you see any parallels in our line today, in our world today, our, our, our land? I see a lot. I see a whole lot of people who are starting to say, sex is bad. Why do we want to bring kids into a world like this? There's something missing here. There's something really bad. Burt Wallace often speaks of the puritanical nature of much of the criticism against Puritan ways. I agree wholeheartedly. The people that are saying, that's Puritan, sis. We've been to a couple of times. Sarah, our daughter, is in Boston. A couple of times we've been on that little freedom trail. Uh, and they take you out there in uh, the, the, the main square there right beside the, the big church. And, and they show you where these stocks were, and if a person disagreed on a very small point of doctrine, they would put them in there, and it was a cow pasture, so people were encouraged to throw cow stuff in their faces. And the ways that they talk about the Puritans sound so like Puritans would talk about other people. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, let me get straight to the application. Get married early, have lots of babies, and be prepared to serve in children's ministry for years after your children are no longer participants in children's ministry. In Scripture, marriage and children are a blessing, especially to the Jewish remnant left in Babylon. They were. Verse 2 must have also been encouraging. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. This feels like <clears throat> putting up like a circus tent and make it as big as you can possibly make it. But it's no circus tent at all that's being talked about here. Not only will the nation grow, it will grow considerably, and the growth will occur with the Lord among his people. Now, let me tell you how, I, how we get there. The place of your tent, in verse 2, was almost certainly a reference to the tabernacle, um, <clears throat> which represented the Lord's presence. Remember when the children of Israel crossed over uh, from the Red Sea into the wilderness, and the Lord gave instructions, here's what to build, and you're going to stay there for a while. My presence will be in the tabernacle, will root up. 
pick up stakes and, and, and pack it up and go somewhere else, and then we'll camp for a while. That tabernacle moved around. Now, remember, I said a while ago, and I hope you were thinking this when I said it. I hope you were thinking, no, wait, wait, there's a little bit more to that. When I said this was written to people in captivity, Isaiah actually wrote his prophecy some 100, 150 years prior to the people being in captivity and hearing his words. Uh, so that means that when Isaiah wrote this chapter 54 that sort of alludes to the tabernacle, they're still in Jerusalem. They're not over in Babylon. They're in Jerusalem. And what's the most prominent building in Jerusalem? The temple. Sacrifice. Anybody anywhere in Israel that wants to worship God, all the way worship God, has to go to Jerusalem and worship God at the temple. The tabernacle, remember, was moving all over the place. So why do you think of that the, the writer uh, that Isaiah wrote about uh, that, that, that used tabernacle imagery instead of temple? The writer of Hebrews did the same thing. Writer of Hebrews almost certainly wrote before Rome destroyed the temple in A.D. 70. So once again, he's talking about tabernacle while the temple is up. Well, I think it's the same thing. I, it's all speculation. I've never seen anybody say this, but could it not possibly be that it's because the tabernacle moved and it's far bigger than just one city? God, Isaiah, of all the Old Testament prophets, talks about the Gentiles are going to be brought in. God is going to do a new thing. And all kinds of people, not just Jewish people, but Gentiles are going to be brought into my family. Uh, early in 2019, we're going to begin a series in the Gospel of, of John. You may be familiar with John 1.14. All the verses before talking about the Word. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Who's the, what is this Word we're talking about? It was Jesus. And here's how we know. Verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory of the Son. The only Son from the Father. Full of grace and truth. So here's what He means. And, and the Word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt. The, literally, the Greek word means tabernacled. He made his dwelling among us. God moved into our midst. It's not like we had to go anywhere. He just came down, moved into our midst. We met him at the cross. You cannot... As far as I can see in Scripture, you cannot be believe that Jesus is only part God or part, part man or one or the other and be a Christian. If you don't believe Jesus was 100% God, 100% man, you cannot be a believer. He is both. And as believers, we are delighted to be told that we need to enlarge the tent so that more can come in. It's even more direct than verse 3. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. It's natural for you to want people to agree with you, isn't it? I mean, why is it that it's so important that we get people to think just like we do on whatever the issue? 
on a game or, 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 or the way a business is running or why, do, why it confirms, it affirms that we're good people, right? It affirms that we're smart people. It, it just shows that we're making the right choices. I doubt seriously you have noticed anyone of late arguing strenuously for his or her position as superior to yours. I don't think we're seeing that in our culture these days. But if the day comes, we'll be ready for it. The promise of verse 3 is that the message of the Lord, the gospel will spread as the people of God multiply. Desolate cities will come to life. You may sense that we live in a time where Christians ought to just be quiet. A lot of people are being told, just be quiet. Just shut up today. A lot of people are saying that about Christians. Just shut up. You're a big part of the problem to begin with. And we confess. That's true. Even if some followers of Jesus have given Christianity a bad name, there is nothing wrong with the gospel. And furthermore, you have, you possess, if you know the gospel, and you are able to share it in any way, you have the only meaningful statement about our existence in the universe. You're the only one who can say, this is why life has meaning. This is what gives purpose to all of us. Rupert Short uh, begins his excellent apologetic for, for Christianity. It's a book called God is No Thing. One of his chapters is God is no thing, but he is not nothing. Um, God is no thing, and that book is no slouch. Don't, don't read it unless you're seriously wanting to go into it. But here's how he begins his book. Christianity at its center, we know where he's from, uh, across the pond. Christianity at its center, the story of love's mending of wounded hearts. That's what Isaiah 54 is oh, utterly about forms a potent resource for making sense of our existence. It provides the strongest available underpinning for values, including the sanctity of life, the dignity of the individual, and human responsibility for the environment. Who do you know that focuses on all three things? A very small handful of people. And I'm going to guess they're believers. I agree wholeheartedly with Mr. Short. Verse 4. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. Look, I, I was talking earlier about how we're all trying to get over our childhood, right? I mean, there are things you just can't get past. Well, he's saying, you're going to forget it. The day's coming. You're not going to remember that anymore. It's never going to affect you anymore. The shame in this verse speaks directly to the shame associated 
with being barren. Now, remember, God is speaking to the nation, not to an individual, though individuals could relate to what the Lord was saying. In the same way that he did with Sarah and Rebecca, Rachel and Hannah, God will pour out his blessings on his children so that the blessing of marriage and children will be even greater for having borne the sorrow of barrenness. Verse 5, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. Look, there are a lot of people that have serious issues with um, the, the male dominance in Scripture. Think about this, ladies. We're constantly be, being called the wife of Yahweh, the bride of Christ. It's tough for us too. You know, we, we've got it. We got some stuff we got to deal with here. And he's saying, the Lord, your maker is your husband. Now, I would imagine many of you are like, wow, Just think about it. My maker is my husband. Do you understand the depths of joy that are described in this verse? To a people who would live under oppressive rule, the creator and sustainer of the entire universe is their husband. Look, the, 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 the authenticity of gods in ancient times was determined by how well the nations did in battle. And the, the, the Jewish people had been completely, almost killed out of existence. And he's saying, you got nothing to worry about. Your creator and your redeemer who's going to take you out of this is your husband. No matter how it looks, God is all over everything in our lives. Verse 6. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. But the wife of youth, when she is cast off, says, you're God. Now, look, I talk about this a fair amount, but there are always new people here. And I just want you to understand when, what it was like to be a woman in ancient times. Um, when you were married, your family pretty much said, okay, now somebody else is going to take care of you. And if you did not have a son, you were in big trouble down the road because sons take care of their mothers. That is why Jesus' healing of or, or bringing back to life the widow's son at the funeral was such a compassionate, gracious miracle that he did. There was so much more than just, oh, he brought somebody back to life. Here's the son who is going to take care of of his mother, and if he dies, she's in big trouble. And when a wife was divorced, when a woman was divorced, they didn't do much divorcing. It was always a man who would write a certificate of divorce and put them off, and she was in trouble. But he's saying, Don't you worry about it. I'm your husband. He's called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says, your God. The English has called you is an instantaneous perfect in the Hebrew. And it may be better translated. The Lord is calling you. You who feel hopeless and rejected. God is calling you at this moment. 
Do you think there are those who need to hear this kind of good news today? Do not be put off, put off by rough or de defensive ex exteriors. I had a cousin I talked to him this week. Uh, oh, just great sorrow in his family with the loss of a son. But my cousin uh, came to me a year before I got Christian. It was after I'd been arrested and for, for drugs and let out of jail. And he came to me and tried to witness to me. And I cussed him every way imaginable. And he was very patient and gracious and kind. And then a year later, uh, on a word that came from Jim Acock through a friend of mine who had gotten saved. Small world, isn't it? The way those things work. Um, I trusted Christ and my life changed instantly. And my cousin, David Brisson, was the one who took me to Team Valley the first time. Took me up there and just dropped me off in plum tree, for goodness sakes. Plum out in the tree. It's in the middle of nowhere. Um, and so David had a huge role in those early days. And it's like the Lord told me, I'm calling you out of this horrible darkness that I was living in. And he used people to do it just like he wants to use you to speak into people who may cuss and say every horrible thing in the world about you. But don't be put off by that rough exterior. You have the only answer. You have the only answer. Do you believe that? Do you also believe that people are perishing, as Trip Lee told us over and over at a conference a few weeks ago? It's crazy to do all this stuff unless people are eternally perishing all around us. Speaking of dark places, verses 7 and 8. For a brief moment, I deserted you. But with great compassion, I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord. Once again, keep Isaiah 54 in context. After 53, before 55. 53, the suffering servant. 55, come, eat bread, drink wine, drink uh, milk. I mean, those of you who have no money. Come, it's free, just come. Isaiah 54 is right in the middle. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face for you, from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord. Look, before the description of the crucifixion in Isaiah 53, there was no sense that we could make of how God could bless the sinful people that we are. Nobody, nobody, nobody in all of the Old Testament history did it perfectly. Everybody messed up. That doesn't mean that God didn't love his people before the crucifixion. But it does mean that the crucifixion was the cure for our sin. All sin. All people, whether they belong to the Lord or not, are guilty of sin, right? But the Lord saved some as, on the, as a result of what Jesus did. And Romans 3.25 tells us he was always looking forward to the cross in his dealings with us. But now he tells the people, I hid my face from you for a little while. When was that? When they sinned so greatly that they went into captivity. But now, now, if you read this in, in the bigger context, because of what Jesus did in Isaiah 53, which would not happen for another 700 years. But what Jesus did 
in Isaiah 53, now I will love you with an everlasting love from now on. Verses 7 and 8 um, deal uh, with the idea that <laughs> there are times in our lives it feels like God has rejected us. We know he never will because of what Jesus endured on the cross. But those patterns are interesting in our own lives. You ever had those times when at, you knew you were a Christian? That wasn't a question. Um, but you experience the deafening silence of heaven. I, I, I think there's a time in every one of our lives, just like Job, that we can't make any sense of it at all, and the heavens are silent. You are experiencing what Jesus did minus God's judgment. Such times strengthen your faith, although strengthening your faith may be the last thing that seems to be happening to you. But think of all the people that were mentioned earlier. Solomon, Elijah, even the Apostle Paul, who was discouraged far more often than you are, are aware, likely. God has his reasons for allowing us to go through these silent periods. Take heart. You are the treasured wife of Yahweh, the bride of of Christ, and according to these next several verses, beloved and bejeweled, this is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should, Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, and I will not rebuke you, for the mountains may depart, and the hills be removed. But my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antinomy, ant antimony, I'm sorry. I want to say ant antinomy, but it's antimony. And lay your foundations with sapphires. And I will make your pinnacles of agate and your gates of carbuncles. And all your wall of precious stones. This beautiful city that God is building. Jerusalem. And all your children shall be taught by Yahweh. And the great shall be the peace. And great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear. And from terror, for it shall not come near you. Look, in all of this section, the Lord tells us how beautiful the bride of Christ is to the Lord. And who is the bride of Christ? The church. Does the church have its problems? It absolutely does. But scripture is clear that the Lord loves the church. Jesus loves his bride. If you walk away from the church, you are walking away from Jesus. I didn't say if you walk away from Grace Community Church, you're walking away from Jesus. But if you think that the problems of the church are so great and people are so messed up that I could just 
better serve and, 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 and please the Lord right out on my own, you're in dangerous place. The scripture is clear. To walk away from Jesus, to be apart from the church, is to be away from Jesus. Don't do it. As for the state of the church, the state of God's covenant people, Jesus promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. What does he think of us? Verses 15 to 17, and we're almost through. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Look, this is, I've got your back language. God is saying to his children. Whoever stirs up strife with you, shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you will succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants not servant, singular, but servants, plural, of the Lord. Who? Israel, all of us who follow Jesus. And their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. In this day when the message of the gospel seems to be losing in the greater culture, it's nothing like it was for the people of God in Babylon. Trust God to accomplish his will and gather a people for himself. When we sing Jesus praises around the throne, the crowd is going to be so much more diverse than we can possibly imagine. Who needs the gospel of Christ? Every man, woman, and child on the face of the earth. Be confident as you share the gospel, knowing that the Lord will enlarge our tent as he, Jesus, tabernacles among his people. Jesus among his people. That's good news for everybody. Let's pray. Well, Father, um, there's much in this life that doesn't make sense to us, and there's much in your word that doesn't make sense to us, but we know it is perfect, and it certainly points us in the direction. And the beauty and the benefit of being gathered together week in and week out and hearing from you and encouraging one another, not only here but in home groups and in all the different places where we come together to learn from your word. I pray, Lord, that you will cause us to um, have open hearts and trusting hearts. And even in the dark and silent places, Lord, we pray for your presence to sustain us, even if we're not aware of it. We need you. We thank you for in a moment calling us to yourself and putting us in this life that is going to make all kinds of sense in the end. We trust you for that. We believe Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.